Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it has been said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye, right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whatever slaps you, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other, the, the other to him also. If anyone wants to, you, to sue you and take away your tunic, let him also let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. But to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who, dis- who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize so much here that is beyond our our capability to obey. And Lord, we pray for encouragement from your spirit to help us to know how individually to walk in obedience to your word. We pray that you'd use these verses to make us more like Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to continue to be honest with one another, transparent with one another in our failings and our shortcomings and our sin, Lord, and all the things that you have arranged for your body to participate in so that healing can come. We pray that our church would remain a place where we can share with one another things that we need to share. So we pray that we'd be gracious. We pray we'd be patient and forgiving and loving. And we pray that we'd be aggressively loving our brothers and sisters among us. We thank you for that we are a part of one body. We thank you, Lord, that it's a beautiful body. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes today and also just the general, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And they don't really have massive mountains there. Uh, but this sermon is truly a mountain. It's one of the best sermons ever. Uh, I would say it's the best sermon ever preached. And so we begin by looking at these Beatitudes, and they start with the word blessed, and that means in the original language, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. Happiness is usually a priority of ours. We kind of take it seriously with our own lives. Like, happiness is at all costs sometimes uh, drives us to, to, to do whatever we need to do to secure it, even to the point, unfortunately, where we are disobeying God's word. So many divorces have happened because people have listened to the world saying, God wants you happy. God wants you to you know, watch out for yourself and make sure that you're happy no matter what, and people are willing to sin and break that covenant for their happiness. God doesn't call us to be happy outside of his word because being outside of his word isn't something that we should be happy about. It causes pain and suffering because his calling on our lives and what he calls us to is good and right and it's appropriate and anything outside of that is going to bring us harm. We do need to see right away as we looked at this chapter who he's to whom he is speaking and we see that in verses 1 and 2. He says, "And seeing the multitudes He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So he saw the multitudes, went up on a mountain, and then 
We seated with his disciples. The teacher would always seated, sit in those days, kind of like that. I could just have you guys stand and me sit the whole time back like it was back then. Don't you want a biblical church? I'm just kidding. But I actually like standing. I don't feel comfortable sitting. But they, he sat down with his disciples. So his disciples came to him and he opened this. Notice verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. He wasn't teaching the multitudes here. Very important to know that. Sometimes people read the Sermon on the Mount, they read these verses, and they think, oh, this is how God has called people to live their lives. And this is just kind of like a moral code or a moral way of, of pleasing him and so forth until they get to the part of loving your enemies. Like, well, I don't know about that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not for just the, anyone in this world to, to try to do these things, especially to get any kind of right standing with God. It's for disciples. This is for disciples. This is for us as believers. And so he's teaching them how to live a life that reflects him. And that's really what we see as we go through all these things and these ways that people are treated and and how they're not treated and these things that he calls us to and the things that he doesn't call us to. It reflects his character. He's like these things, the good things. And the things that are bad that he wants us to flee from, he doesn't like those things. So he calls us to to be perfect. The last verse of the chapter says, be perfect just like your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Or the word perfect can mean complete, fulfilled. So the whole point of sitting his disciples down or, or taking advantage of them sitting down when he's sitting down is to teach them that they need to be like their heavenly Father. That's what a disciple is about. It's about being like our Heavenly Father, not like a a teacher or a preacher or someone on TV or someone that is a role model or someone we look up to. As as much as we can do those things and God has placed people in our lives to look up to, we're supposed to be focused on our Heavenly Father and pleasing Him and living a life that brings Him glory. Now he's going to give eight of these blesseds here and he starts in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven, and someone has said that it's poverty of spirit, lo- being lowly in spirit, to to um, to admit that you're spiritually have need of God, because that's the path to being filled. That's the path of being spiritually strong. That's the path to being how God's called us to be, to commune with Him, our spirits with His spirits. Once we come to know Him, He's the Father of our spirits. So. He says that you're blessed, you're happy if you're poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't start your relationship with him or or secure a place in heaven without recognizing that that you have need of his spirit in your life. To have your ungenerated, unregenerated, dead spirit be made alive through uh, being born again and coming into a personal relationship with him. So those that are in that condition, have the, are, are on their first stages of recognizing that they need God and God will pour into them. So people are poor everywhere. All around us, people are poor in spirit. Even the ones that think that they're strong in spirit and they have no need of God. He didn't come to make the sick or the, 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 those that are healthy well. He came to, to, to help the sick. That's why he came. But he wants to use us to do it. He wants to use us to be able to to explain to people their great need, to be able to articulate the gospel to people so the Holy Spirit can come and say, that's right, you already know you're a sinner. 
and you need a Savior. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust in Him. And that's what the Holy Spirit works with as we open our mouths and preach the gospel because without a preacher, how will they hear? And how will they go unless they're sent? So that's what the Great Commission is all about. Verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's really saying happy are those who are unhappy. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of weird. Happy are those that are unhappy or blessed or happy are those who are mourning. This world says it's, it's better to blessed are those who are proud in spirit, who are strong in spirit, and, and are blessed. They say blessed are those who are not mourning. But he calls us to mourn for things that he mourns over. Again, this is all reflecting his heart. Does When we talk about the Holy Spirit being grieved, we talk, that, that's in the context of mourning. The Holy Spirit mourning about what we're in the middle of, what others that he cares about are in the middle of, and, he, and he's grieved. When you're grieved... You're, you're mourning. So, so he mourns. And so there are appropriate times for us to mourn. And we can think we're in this situation and we're mourning and we're sorrowful. It can't be God's will. He says, you know you're, he says I know you're going to be in that situation. And you're going to be able to experience part of what I experienced when I came to this earth. I mourned as well. He, Jesus wept. We know that. It's recorded in the scriptures. But he says, you're blessed when you are, are mourning because you have my heart in you being expressed And he says also, for they shall be comforted. That's the great news for the Christian. No matter what we mourn about now in this life, we will be comforted. We're comforted by God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that. We're also comforted by God himself. But ultimately, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, right? Many believe that's going to be wiping away our memory of those that we don't see there in heaven. How can we enjoy heaven for all eternity knowing that those that we love are not there? We don't know. That's speculation. But we know that we, he will wipe away every tear. We will ultimately be completely comforted for all eternity. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't use that word meek a lot. It means power under control. And the classic word picture is a horse that's been, that's been broken in. And that rider on that horse, I'm not a big horse rider. It's, I've, had, I've had bad things happen on a horse before. And, but the horse that, that is well-trained and someone who's trained how to ride the horse, maybe that was my problem, uh, can control that horse by the bit and pulling on the reins and so forth, control that power. I mean, ever, look at a horse's legs. They're like this tall. You know, when they're like this wide. You just think about people that get kicked by horses and how they ever survive. It seemed like you'd look down and you'd see a big hoof hole, you know, right here, like looking through all the way through your body. But I mean, just power, power under control. Jesus is the obviously quintessential picture of power under control. You know, because he had all the power in the, in the universe and beyond, but yet allowed sinful man to, to do what sinful man did to him for our sin and so forth. He says, for they shall inherit the earth. We are going to be able to rule and reign, and part of that is ruling and reigning in the new Jerusalem, and, and, and the millennium, of course, will be ruling and reigning as well. So Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse because they, they don't believe anyone's going to heaven except the 144,000. Um, one thing I would say to you to help them is to read every account in Revelation when they're all worshiping God, and it says an endless crowd, every t- uh, tongue, tribe, nation, and ask them, where is that location? 
Well, it's on earth. Well, no, it's, it's, it's heaven. It says right here. No, it's on earth. It says heaven. But it, it's earth, though. But it says heaven. You know, it's, well, I can't believe anything else except what the Bible says. And every time they're worshiping with every, beyond the 144,000, they're in heaven. Sorry. So we move on to something else. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Notice he doesn't say who hunger and thirst to know about righteousness. We use this verse a lot of times. Look at this person. They're so hungry for God's word and they're hungry for God and so forth. That's true. But you're blessed when you just hunger and thirst for righteousness itself. When you're to be righteous, to be holy, to be all that God wants us to be, to have his character. And, and, and so when we hunger and thirst for that itself, we're blessed. Because he says, notice the end of verse 6, for they shall be filled. God wants to fill us. If our desire, and it's from him, it's from the Holy Spirit, we want to be filled, and we want to be uh, hung, we want to be filled completely with his righteousness, he will do it. We can have as much of God as we want, much of God as we're, we're open uh, to. So we were hardwired and for hunger and thirst. We don't have to try physically, even spiritually. Why do people are so religious in this world? Because God made us to need him. And so they may be filling it with false things and so forth, but we were made to consume both from a food standpoint, a drink standpoint, and also spiritually, from a spiritual standpoint. And then he, he says, I will do it. I will fill them. Now, happiness, he gets to, it's not just related to ourselves. Now he's going to start branching out in our dealings with other people, in part, in these next few verses. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So this is starting to affect other people. Because you usually, he's not talking about merciful, be merciful with yourself. He's talking about be merciful with other people. Sometimes we say, well, they don't really deserve mercy. Well, that's what being merciful is. It's being merciful is not getting something that you deserve. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. He says, you're happy if you're merciful. But don't we think, oh, if I'm merciful and I give this person mercy, I'm going to be miserable and I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to suffer as a result of it. He doesn't say that. He says, you'll be blessed. Why? Because you're going to be like him. Because he's merciful. And at great cost, he was merciful to people by the cross. And again, it says, for they shall obtain mercy. God is reciprocating on our lives, and he gives us mercy because of who he is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our hearts are the issue. People say, oh, I have a language problem. I have a cussing problem, or I have a whatever. No, you have a heart problem. Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he calls us to have pure hearts before him, but sometimes we sabotage ourselves by filling our hearts and our minds with things that are are against his word. And the standard in the church is getting lower and lower and lower, and anyone that that, uh, disagrees with them, you're accused of being a legalist. Psalm 101 says, I will put no unclean thing before my eyes. I will not know unrighteousness. Well, how do, we, how do we participate in the entertainment system or the entertainment world? It's really difficult for all of us, myself included. And as things get lower and lower and, and, and the, the standard gets lower and lower and we can comfort ourselves with other people that are doing those same things that our flesh wants to do, he says, no, you need to be pure in heart. 
You'll see me. We're told elsewhere, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he wants us to engage in holiness, even to the heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. When I first read this, and I, you know, I don't know if I was when I first read it, but at some point I read it and I thought he was saying pacemakers. I was really confused, uh, but I finally got it right. Um, that was, that's my issue. I didn't mean to bring it into here, but... Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become sons of God. How much work does it take to be a peacemaker? It takes a lot of work. Do you take some hits? Do you take some, some incoming? <laughs> yes, you take, it takes a toll on you. To try to be a peacemaker in a situation, you're between two parties that are very passionate about a situation. And you're trying to bring peace, and they can start attacking you. And you're like, hey, easy now. I'm trying to help the situation. So maybe you're here today and you're in the middle of some kind of family thing or whatever and you're trying to bring peace to the situation. God says that you're blessed and it doesn't matter if you feel like you're happy about it or whatever. He's recognizing that that is the appropriate thing because he's the ultimate peacemaker between God and man and between man and man. He gives us the capacity to have peace with other people and we are supposed to live at peace with all men as so as as we are able or as as whatsoever the rest of the verse, as it's in our control or under our power. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. You know, we just pray for Pastor Saeed. God says that he's blessed. And he may not, I'm sure he doesn't feel blessed. We're praying for his release. But we're also hearing of how he's making a difference in that prison. That many, many people are coming to know Christ that probably wouldn't come to know Christ apart from his witness there. And we need to pray for him. But whenever we're persecuted for righteousness sake, whenever we stand up for what's right, and the church is getting less and less willing to stand up for what's, what's right in this culture because of the mantra of being tolerant and being, not being judgmental and all these things, and, and we need to still stand up for what's right and what the truth is no matter what the cost. But we're going to get persecuted. And, and when that happens, we need to recognize that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here, Matthew is, by the Spirit, saying that, he's quoting Jesus and, and encouraging them that when this happens to us, sometimes we think in our minds, this is unique to us. Like, we're the only ones going through this. And No, there's a long heritage. There's a long history of people persecuting uh, prophets and others that stood up for the things of the Lord. And, and he says, great is your reward. Be, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Not just glad. Notice he doesn't just say glad in verse 12. Exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. There's different levels of rewards in heaven. We're going to get different types of rewards based on our ministries and, and faithfulness and the right, the right motivation and so forth. And so this kind of life this character that comes out of our lives, standing up for what's right, we're going to have great influence over people, and sometimes they're not going to appreciate it. Then he gets, tells us a designation in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, 
How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but, it, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt makes people thirsty. I remember in and out Burger, okay, we need, it's, sometimes it always comes back to food, unfortunately, with me, I apologize, but um, at least I'm not talking about Pop-Tarts, so you get a little break on that. But in and out Burger, you know, people really like that, I like it and everything, and I was like, what's the big deal with their fries? People make a big deal about their fries. I don't understand what's the, I like McDonald's fries better or whatever, and, and, and I realized that for years, I wasn't putting salt on them, <laughs> because I thought they already salted it. And um, so then I put salt on them, and I couldn't believe the difference. And um, so, again, my issues being, um, you know, for all to hear. Um, but salt is, a, is, is something that provides flavor. It's, it, it, it produces thirst. It's a, and it's also a preservative. God's using us in this world to preserve this world until the, the last Gentile is saved, and then he's going to rapture us out of, out of this world. And the salt will be removed that preservative will be gone so we are called to be salt and we are called to um, tell the truth to people and create a thirst because if we're walking in the spirit not gratifying the lust of the flesh we are going to look different in this life sometimes i tell unbelievers i say don't be afraid of what god's going to turn you into he's not going to turn you into some weirdo that that's obnoxious Maybe you've seen people on street corners that you could, could never imagine being like that. And I'm not saying everyone that's on street corners is wacky or whatever, but we, we've seen our share of people that, man, please don't. Just say you're Muslim or, or another religion or something. You, know, you don't have to say you're Christian, uh, but they're just not representing the Lord. Don't be afraid of what Jesus is going to turn you into. He's going to turn you into having a character like him. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. He says, you are the light of the world, verse 14. Now, light brings safety and it warms. Darkness is cold. It, it, it's, it, it can cause coldness and, and it, can cause, it can be dangerous because you don't know where you're going next. We're light. We're salt and light. And we need to be very aggressive in speaking up for the things in our workplaces, in our families, in any place that we find ourselves we're called to speak the truth in love and and doesn't matter what we lose he's trying to say you're being like your heavenly father yes you may be persecuted yes you may pay a high price in this world but you're going to be blessed because you're on my side doing my will glorifying me and people coming in to write conclusions about god because of of what you're doing or what you're abstaining from that everyone else is joining in participating in and he continues, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are a city that's been set on a hill, figuratively speaking. And we sometimes think that we can be hidden. He's saying it doesn't exist. You are, not you could be the light of the world, or you should be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. Will you like it or not? Just like a city on a hill with, that's lit, that has lights, that's uh, illuminating an area because everybody can see the lights of that city, you are that whether you want to be that or not. I mean, you're, you're, that's who you are. He's saying our, our identity is that we are the light of the world. We cannot be hidden. 
He says, verse 15, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine. Let, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, don't be tempted to hide your light. No one does that. No one reasonable or appropriate does that. They don't hide lights. You don't put lights underneath a, a basket or whatever so that no light comes out. The purpose of it is to illuminate. So he's saying to us as disciples, he's saying it's not optional. He's saying, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and look at the result of end, of end of verse 16. And glorify your Father in heaven. That's what will happen. So that people will come to know Christ. They will see a difference. In, how many times have we had people say, you're different. What, what is it about you? I haven't heard you say one this or that. Let's raise our hands. Anyone say that to us? What's wrong, What's wrong with you? They're like, I'm a Christian. Oh, one of those people. Great. You don't have to worry. I'm just going to aim to be like Jesus around you. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who his, what his character is like? What would you think his character is like, if you were to guess? Oh, he's probably loving. Yep, he's loving. You go down the list and describe who Jesus is with them, and you'd say, so you wouldn't want to be like that? It kind of doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't we want to be like Jesus? But they, don't, they, they, they know that they don't get to be the Lord of their own lives. And that's the issue. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. That's the true reason. There's truly no intellectual issues. It's a heart issue. People don't want you to shine your light of God's word in their heart showing themselves how sinful they are and their need for a savior it's uncomfortable and and, and they if they they're in churches that go through lar- large sections of scripture they're very uncomfortable because it's speaking to them and showing them that they're guilty and they need to change and they don't want that now he gets to the law he says in verse 17 do not think that i came to destroy the law and the prophets i did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, Jesus is really for the law. There's Christians out there that teach that Jesus doesn't care about the law of Moses, that he's against it, or he doesn't call us to have anything to do with it. There is a purpose for the law of Moses, and that purpose still stands today. It's for the person that doesn't know Jesus, mostly for the Jews, because the law was given to Jews, although the fact that they are called to, to submit to their Messiah it makes everyone else, all other people and Gentiles, guilty before God in the sense of if, if they can't meet the standard of, me, of, of all those you know, 613 laws and they can't meet the standard, that must, where does that leave me as a Gentile? It leaves me guilty as, as well. So he says not one part of the law is going to go away. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it, and he did fulfill it. So he says, a jot, which is, it's the, it's the smallest Hebrew letter. And, and then the tittle is a part of a Hebrew letter. So the smallest parts of even the parts of the law are not going to go away. He's fulfilled them, and, and, and they won't come to, by, by no means, pass away till all is fulfilled. Psalm 19 is similar to Psalm 119. 
And I want to read it for you, a few verses, 7 through 10. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. That's a beautiful description of the law. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. It has its purpose. But if we love, if we obey the law of Christ, and we love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, he says Moses and the prophets hang on those. So the law of Christ, if we obey the law of Christ in love, we are going to fulfill the moral law of the Old Testament. We're going to fulfill the, the moral law. And the ceremonial law is, was for the Jews and has, doesn't have its purpose uh, today. And that, Hebrews talks about that we have a better covenant in the new covenant. And the old covenant is obsolete. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to imagine Jesus saying this, this verse 20 for the first time now to these disciples. And they probably went, <gasps> so let's try that. I'll read it and then you do the, <gasps> For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right. And everybody, all the podcasters heard that. Why would they go, I'm going to hyperventilate if I'm not careful. Well, why would they? Stop, drop, and roll. No, that was another for something else. No, Um, But... Why would they go? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the legalists. They tried to follow every single thing to a T. And, and so they were known for being the most righteous. These Pharisees, they were known to be the most righteous and holy. And he's saying, unless you top those guys, you will by no means, not, not like close, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You're like, where does that leave me? Where does that leave me? Because they didn't, they, no one understood yet, the disciple, notwithstanding these disciples either. I mean, they, they didn't know yet about the perfect righteousness of Christ positionally being put to our account when we put our faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, and, and through grace alone, and he comes in and he makes our dead spirits alive and he forgives us of everything. We're positionally righteous and 100% perfect and holy before God, and when he sees us, he sees perfection. That is righteousness that exceeds the law, or that exceeds the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in their minds, they'd be going, wow, where does that leave me? Number two is, those guys aren't as holy as I thought they were. <laughs> you know, they... You know, what, what are, who are they, you know? Um, and, and so he's exposing that. Now he's explaining, going to explain now how kind of all the law works. He's going to explain how um, there's so many matters related to God's character. Remember, this is all about, this, this book was written by a Jew, uh, he was from a Jew, about a Jew. You know what I'm saying. A Jew, writing to Jews about a Jew, the Messiah. So everything is, that's why there's more teaching of Christ in the book of Matthew than any of the other Gospels. And that's in, in part because 
um, God had earlier said in, in, in um, Deuteronomy 18, let me read it for you. It says, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord, your God, in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I will, he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So Matthew knows they know this, these Jews that are reading this, and he's giving this case that Jesus is the Messiah. So of course he would be the one that would, that would provide the most amount of, of Jesus' teaching. So I believe that's one of the reasons why he expounds on all this. But people that were listening, these Jews and so forth, they knew the law. And here Jesus is, and these disciples, they're all uh, Jewish. And he's explaining to them how, what would had been said. And he says this ter- phrase over and over, it, um, you have heard. Most people didn't have the scrolls. They just heard that read it read in the synagogue. So here he is, he's saying, you have heard, verse 21, that it is said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So he's saying, you think you're, because if you were to ask someone, ask us, them and us. They say, have you murdered someone? No, I've never murdered anybody. He's saying that to be like the father, it's not just your outward behavior, it's your inward behavior. And and part of the law uh, talks about our inward behavior, do not covet and so forth. So it's not like the law never covered our hearts and the inward standard there. But he's saying, you know, you're, you are guilty. Just because you're not doing something outwardly doesn't mean you're innocent. That's what he's getting to. And the father knows that. And that's why he wants these disciples to know this. So he says, if you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, um, I mean, it, it means an idiot. That's what Raka means, that you're, that you're an idiot. And, 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 that, or, and then, so you don't want to slander people. You don't want to say to people that you hate them or that you have bad motivations in your heart. You want to be loving towards people because that's how God is and so forth. And he's saying this conflict that someone has with you, if you know someone has a conflict with you, don't even be involved in the ritual of, of giving at the altar like they did. Just, just go back and be reconciled. God wants us to be reconciled. Because see, here they were using outward excuses to have dysfunctional relationships. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. You have to have 
relationships with people. You have to deal with problems. Things in the body of Christ get messy. God wants um, people to be reconciled. He wants that grace to be extended and, and forgiveness to be offered and so forth. So he's saying it's different than what you thought. You thought just because you, know, you haven't done something outwardly that you're innocent. And that's the kind of righteousness that he's talking about with the Pharisees. Because they were absolutely consumed with external holiness. He's always telling them it's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. So he's continuing to do that. Verse 27. You have heard that it is said, those of old do not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of the mem- your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now people have t- taken this literally, unfortunately, and I don't believe he's saying you need to be involved in cutting off members of your body and so forth. He's saying whatever, be ruthless with it. Whatever needs to happen, you need to take care of that. Whatever needs to happen so that you live a life that's pleasing to him by God's grace, you need to do it. But I think we need the strength of, um, especially men, of the strength of verses 27 and 28. You can't say you haven't committed adultery if you've lusted after another woman. Same with women. They can lust after men, too. It seems like men are more visual, it seems like. But there's women, obviously, that lust in their heart as well. Now, people would like this to say that that means that I have biblical grounds for divorce. But just because that would mean everyone has grounds for divorce then. So the act, the physical act of adultery is not equal to lust. He's not saying it's the same exact sin with the same exact repercussions. He's saying you're just not, you're just not innocent if you haven't done it outwardly. If you haven't done it physically with somebody, doesn't mean that you're not guilty of adultery. You are. You're just committed adultery in your heart. There's a lot of marriages that people just want any excuse to get out, and they'll try to find any verse that they possibly can to say that they have a reason to get out of that marriage, and, and that, isn't, that isn't one of them. There's physical, and he's going to get into it, physical adultery, and that would give you grounds. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now I'll deal with this in another gospel more in depth, Uh, but it matters to God what we do in these relationships. And so um, if we, we can't just write a certificate of divorce, that's that's what, you know, happened in the Old Testament. Moses allowed that. Jesus said it in another place because of the hardness in their, of their heart. But he says here, he's, he's altering that from the law of Moses and saying that it has to be sexual immorality and so forth. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall uh, perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is 
for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So we don't need to take oaths. We don't need to say, I true, because the reason why people would take these oaths is because people wouldn't believe that they would do what they would say they were going to do. They would just say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Even my friends, when we were kids, when we said, I promise, that meant that we were truly telling the truth. And we did that because we lied so much to each other. We had to have some way to say, no, I'm really telling the truth this time, you know. And that's kind of the same idea. It's that they weren't telling the truth. And so they would say, I swear by this, I swear by this, and I swear by that, and, and all these things. He's saying, don't do that. Just, let, just be true to your word. And again, this are just, he's saying this to the disciples. We should honor our word. If we say we're going to do something, and, and we can still do it, we should follow through. We should be the most dependable people in this world, our Christians. And there's been so many Christians that have gone back on their word, and their yes has not been their yes, and their no hasn't been their no. And none of us should ever be engaged in that. If we, be careful about what you say yes to or what you say no to. Pray about it. But once you commit to something, and as long as it's within your power, you need to follow through with that. And so we should have a reputation of being dependable. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn to the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it's, li- it's a limiting thing that he said in the Old Testament. Because if someone takes my eye I want to take their whole body and I want to take their dog and I want to take their farm and I want to take their everything it's to limit you can only it's a way that they had a civil code in the wilderness there and that was the way that they had kind of like a law enforcement it was I mean they brought their issues to the gate the gate not the gate when they were wandering but I'm saying they brought their issues to the to Moses and the officials later and so forth and you couldn't you couldn't um compensate someone be or be allowed to compensate someone beyond what was reasonable that's what it was for he says don't resist though an evil person now when we get slapped on our right cheek our right hand's going up <laughs> you know that's usually how we are and 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 so it doesn't mean that we're supposed to just get beat up no it's just saying that our heart should be a heart of forgiveness of being gracious we, we can't be in many situations it's our choice whether or not we're going to be a victim we can actually serve them in the context of them trying to hurt us. We can actually try to help them. And again, this is all the context of disciples getting supernatural power from God who are trying to be salt and light in this world, who are trying to have their works glorify their Father in heaven, that the goal is beyond just what's my rights, to lay down my rights to give, to offer. And as I've said before, you can't take advantage of a servant. You just should have a heart of giving. If someone, if you have a giving heart, it's very hard for people to take from you, right? Try to take from someone that has a giving heart. It's really hard to do because they're just giving. And, and Jesus modeled this for us. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, how many of you in that verse, hate your enemy is in italics? In verse 43, and hate your enemy. Anyone have that in italics? Anyone have that in your Bible? 
Raise your hand if you don't have it. It's not, it's not, it's not there or it's in italics showing that it's not in Scripture. Love you, you shall love your neighbor. Well, he's quoting, he's quoting, but hate your, hate your enemy to my knowledge is not in Scripture. But that was added. So it's, they, they added that for convenience. If you love your neighbor, then you get to hate your enemy. <laughs> but I'm loving my neighbor, so I must be able to get to hate my enemy. It's only right. It's only, it's only uh, proper. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons to your, of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your, heaven, your Father in heaven is perfect. So this, obviously, verses 44 and 45 require supernatural power. It's easy to say in theory, yeah, you know what? We're supposed to curse those. I mean, we're supposed to bless those that curse us, do good to those that hate us, pray for those who spitefully. But when that's really happening, when you're in the midst of it, and you just want to just take the gloves off and just settle something out in the back alley or something, it's really difficult. It's easy to say in theory. But when it's happening, that's why we need to call upon God. When someone's screaming at us in our face, they're screaming at us. And we want to lash out. We can pray in the moment and ask God, give us strength. Give, us, give me love right now. Give me patience right now. Help me to not uh, return evil for evil. Help me, Lord, to not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Help me to have a soft answer to turn away wrath. And I'm telling you, it is amazing how he delivers on that. How he gives us the supernatural capacity to do this in the, and what does that do? What does that do related to salt and light? What does it do to having someone potentially open up their heart to the gospel? It opens up with great opportunities. And so we're always trying to fight for our rights. But we need to be concerned about God's reputation. We need to be concerned about the eternal perspective and how God wants to expand his kingdom. And He, don't you realize that you have and I have endless resources to be godly at any moment that we want? Endless resources from God, anytime we want, to respond in a biblical, loving way. Is it hard? Yes. Is it difficult? Absolutely. Are we going to be perfect in it? Probably not. But we should grow in that. We should be ready to help those that are trying to hurt us because it's very hard to resist love. This world out here, I mean, we're involved in homeless ministry. We're involved in all kinds of ministries you're going to hear next week about another ministry that we're going to be a part of. And there's so many times where we can react the wrong way when we're in the lives of people, in, in the midst of lives of, of uh, the people that are hurting and under tremendous stress from being with, having their children suffer or being, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. They could be very hurtful and say very difficult things to us. And for us to, glor- to, to glorify God and to say the right thing, to be salt and light, it's going to require supernatural power of us asking to be refilled with the Spirit, asking to, to give us His character in the moment so that we can respond appropriately. It shouldn't, our response to people sinning against us should shock the world. It should jolt them. It should do the same response as we did with the, your righteousness of, you know, exceeding the scribes. <gasps> 
Did you see manager so-and-so just chew out Pat? Wow, he didn't just lay him out. No, Pat really can't lay out anybody. I mean, but you didn't even see him try to lay him out. I mean, he should have just, just thrashed that guy, and he didn't. He loved him back. Man, that guy is the real deal. How encouraging can it be in our job situation where someone says, you know what, I've watched your life a long time. I've watched what comes out of your life. I've watched how you treat people. I've watched a lot of things, and you know what? You're the real deal. By God's grace, he wants everyone to say that that's around us. And they can say it as we're filled with his spirit. We can, we can let him live his life through our lives and yield ourselves to him so that he can bear fruit in an amazing supernatural way. Because we know in John fifteen five, apart from him, we can do nothing. We don't bring anything to the table. There's nothing that we bring. So we just have to be humble and say, God, if you're going to do it, do it. Because I need you to do it in this situation. I have no power in and of myself. So he wants that holiness. He wants that different kind of life lived. But it can't happen if we're not communing with him. We're not dependent upon him. And again, we want to bless his name. We want to bless his reputation by being obedient to him in the context of great difficulty. I don't know how much mileage Pastor Saeed is getting out of not returning evil for evil in that prison, but I'm very convinced he's, it's a lot. And, and the dozens that I've heard have received Christ are seeing him respond to those guards and those guards being mean to him and hurtful to him. It's getting, I'm sure it gets harder and harder to do the wrong thing to him because he's returning, I'm not saying perfectly, probably at all, but just the fact that he returns love when they do evil to him in general. I bet you there's many guards that have come to know Christ. We'll find out from him, either on this side or the other side, we're going to find out the fruit of, of the ministry that God's put him in the middle of, but we need to continue to pray for him. So let's be the disciples that God's called us to be. Let's be salt. Let's be light. Let's be completely dependent upon him and watch what he'll do through our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that we get to live differently. We thank you for all of this instruction. Help us, Lord, to please you and bless you with our lives. We pray, Lord, that our lives would represent worship and that we would make a difference in this world, that we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be afraid to stand up for what's right and that we would have integrity to stand up for the truth and speak to situations that where you, no one is your, being your mouthpiece and you've called us to in the moment. We pray that you would give us the grace. Help us to be willing to do that. And we pray as a fellowship we would grow in holiness, that we'd encourage one another. Help us to be vulnerable with one another and transparent with one another. Help us to trust each other, Father. Help us, Lord, to bear one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ. Help us to comfort one another with the comfort with which we've been comforted. Just thank you so much for this family, Lord, and what you're doing in and through our lives despite ourselves. By your grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.